Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 356, Darren Feinstein of Core Scientific joins me on the show. And we talk about Bitcoin and this grand update to 700-year-old accounting technology. And so we talk about what Bitcoin enables, Bitcoin mining, obviously, and we talk about some of the different narratives, facts and FUD, as well as the pathway forward. Is it around lobbying? Is it around trying to build support for Bitcoin in the broader public? This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and I'm working over at Swan now also. We launched Swan Private because we talked to so many people that had issues with the major exchanges. Some of them had their accounts locked, customer service couldn't help them, some couldn't onboard their accounts. Many of them simply wanted to talk to an actual human being who could answer their Bitcoin questions. Swan Private is a one-on-one Bitcoin advisory service for high net worth investors and companies and other entity accounts. So this team is here to actually support you in your Bitcoin journey, whether that is expert guidance on choosing the right custody option for your assets, as well as exclusive access to the Swan Private Insight monthly research report. You get direct access to a dedicated Bitcoin expert by text, email, or phone. Go to swanprivate.com to sign up. Now, in the world of Bitcoin mining, there's Brains.com. That's Brains with two eyes. Now, Brains are a Bitcoin mining company. They do a range of products and services, and they also operate Slush Pool, which is the first Bitcoin mining pool. Now, they are also driving forward adoption on Stratum V2. And if you were following, there was recently a report by Galaxy Digital talking about Bitcoin mining protocols and Stratum V2. And I think the time is right now to really start looking at this. Stratum V2 represents historic improvements to security, profitability, and efficiency of pool Bitcoin mining. And with Brains, if you're using Brains OS Plus and you're pointing your hash rate towards Slush Pool, you are getting 0% pool fees and you're helping drive forward this adoption. So make sure you go and check them out. The website is brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. Also in the mining world, Compass Mining. Compass is the world's first and largest online marketplace for Bitcoin mining, hardware, hosting, and ASIC reselling. Bitcoin mining is getting bigger, and so is Compass Mining. Compass is adding over 280 megawatts worth of hosting capacity this year, with more to come. Now, if you're in the US, you can order an ASIC machine to your home, and you can mine from home. You also have the option to order a machine and have that sent to a hosted facility, which has been vetted by the Compass Mining team. And there's different options here. You can purchase a new mining machine or you can use the online marketplace and purchase a secondhand machine, which you might be able to get that online faster. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the website, compassmining.io. And now onto the show with Darren. Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to, good to finally be here. We, we kind of bounced around a little bit, but it, it's uh, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, we got there in the end. Um, Darren, you've got a really interesting background, you know, former accountant, lawyer, now building a, you know, a, a huge Bitcoin mining uh, company, and uh, you've just got a really interesting background. So for, uh, as I understand, you might not have told your story as much uh, in the Bitcoin community as publicly. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, and it is uh, a roundabout way. But uh, I did get in fairly early. The, my background, is, as, you, as you pointed out, I was an accountant for a very short period of time. And, uh, but that was my, my major was accounting. And after accounting, I, was, I went into uh, uh, home loans. I was doing finance for residential mortgages and ended up in commercial. And I uh, decided I wanted to go to law school. 
So while I was uh, still doing mortgages for three or four years, I ended up going to law school. Uh, I worked in mortgages the whole time. So I had a finance and accounting background. Uh, when I got out of law school, I practiced law also for a very short period of time. Uh, I wasn't a great attorney for other people. My uh, bedside manner was not uh, desirable. And so I ended up just going into business for myself because of all the loans that I was a part of uh, over several years. I had an expertise somewhat in, and there's a certain type of loan. Uh, it's called an equity-based loan, which is based off the the value of the asset, not the borrower. And the problem with those loans is sometimes you run into mistakes that are, or problems with the lenders or the borrowers. And so there's a lot of, unfortunately, litigation with that. And so my area of expertise was in distressed financial situations. And so I started, we called it a boutique investment banking company, but I'm not really certain what the proper category categorization is. But we started a distressed equity debt company that specialized in foreclosures, receiverships, litigation, and stuff we could add value to. And so we we uh, we got involved in a lot of operating businesses um, on the West Coast. I ended up in a lot of real estate deals that had gone sideways or ended up in litigation. We we also got involved because I was much younger in uh, restaurants and nightclubs. We we did purchase some of those. And uh, I also started to finance shows. We put money up for uh, large residencies that would come through, a lot of them in the music festival area. And this was 20 years ago. And so we were financing large music festivals and, and some other activity to that extent. Uh, in Las Vegas, specifically, I had a number of businesses, including a number of restaurants. I own several restaurants in Las Vegas and, and across the U.S., uh, in, in an operating company. And I also have an entertainment company. And the entertainment company does uh, ticketing box office and production. And so, for instance, today at the Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas, my company controls the ticketing box office and production of almost all of the shows there. And if I don't own them, they're my tenant, they pay me rent, and they use my ticketing system. And so uh, we have some tribute shows. I own a Michael Jackson tribute show. We've had that for over a decade and some other ancillary shows there. I also do shows or I'll finance. So the shows at the Trop, I'm more of a, uh, I own it, we produce it. And then the other shows that we'll do, for instance, at the Venetian or at MGM at the park or at uh, Zappos Theater, where I'm a partner, I think in every show there, only financially. So I'll put up money with Live Nation, Caesars, MGM or Venetian. And so that I've been doing that a long time. And so all of that, all of those businesses have been ongoing in various ways for decades. In 2011, which was the genesis of, of me getting into Bitcoin, in 2011, these message boards popped up that told the people that went to my shows how to get full refunds if they used a credit card to go see one of my shows. And so people were calling up Visa and MasterCard and American Express and they were saying whatever the message board told them to say. I sat behind a pillar or there was a mean usher that said something bad. And they would get, so they would instant, they would implement a, a chargeback. And instantaneously, Visa would take the money out of my account and give it back to them right away. Like you lose. And if you want to contest business owner, write us a letter and spend six months contesting this thing. 
And so it was just, it became a, it became a nuisance. And so we looked at alternative methods of payment. How, how can I get paid where people won't be scumbags and try to do bad things after they paid us? And we looked at Bitcoin. We looked at Bitcoin. Some of my programmers brought it up in 2011 and because we had a ticketing platform. And when I Googled it myself, right, I'm an accountant, I'm a lawyer, I have privileged licenses, I have a restricted gaming licenses and liquor licenses and banking licenses. And so I have to be careful, a law license, I have to be careful about what I do. And, and I think my reaction when I looked up Bitcoin in 2011 mirrors the same reaction that almost everybody has uh, that's uh, some kind of consummate professional in whatever industry they are. Uh, my reaction initially was I Googled it and I said, Wow, this looks like digital video game money first. And second, it looks like people just use it to buy drugs on the internet, right? And so I was like, you know, probably a good idea not to get involved in that. And I, I passed on it early 11. And I think towards the middle of the year, I, I accidentally stumbled on more Bitcoin articles. And now I'm cognizant of it. So I have, I have you know, I have no understanding of it, but I know the word. And uh, I read an article that really made me question uh, what I read. And as an accountant, I look at everything as a ledger. And I don't think people understand generally because it's such a boring topic. People are like, oh, accounting. And they tune right out and their eyes roll back. But everything on the planet Earth runs on accounting, right? If you don't have ledgers that you can trust, you have nothing. <laughs> There's nothing. All your assets are meaningless, right? The bank, the government every business that you, you're in, if you can't accurately track what you're doing, what you're selling, what you own, you have nothing. You have nothing because people could just take it from you. And so there's always been this overwhelming desire to fix accounting because the accounting systems that we utilize right now leave a lot to be desired. And so the article I read said that this new technology created an immutable ledger. And I remember reading that and I was like, that's impossible. There's no way to create an immutable ledger. And so I started reading about the ledger technology of Bitcoin. And it all of a sudden, over like a one day period, I remember I was reading this. I was like, wow, this is not digital video game money. This is an accounting technology. This changes how people will keep records forever. And I, it took me months. I read everything you could read. I consumed all of the information you can consume. And I realized this. And I geek out on history. I like to get granular on a lot of different businesses that I'm involved in. And so if you break down accounting, which people have to like somehow pay attention to, because if you can't pay attention to the accounting implications, there's no way to respect the technological innovation that is Bitcoin because it, all of it revolves around accounting. And so you have to understand the history of accounting in order to understand the Bitcoin innovation. It's imperative. And so what I realized was that the history of accounting is really, really simple. It's really simple. So it's a boring story, but it's really fast. There's been two accounting innovations in the history of humanity, right? 10,000 years ago, Stephen went to a market and bought five sheep. And you write down, I have five sheep on a clay tablet. Right. And, and you use a clay tablet and then you bake it in the sun. So no other humans change the, the numbers that you wrote down. And, and that's the birth of single entry accounting. Here's a bunch of assets that I bought. Here's a timeline of the purchases. 
and the assets that I own. And at any given time over over time, you could look down and see over six months, 12 months, three years, how many sheep you own, right? And so that was it. That's accounting for 10,000 years up until the 1400s. And in the 1400s, because there's lots of trading going on uh, and lots of people take credit for it. So it's really difficult to, to ascribe it to some one person. But the textbooks starting, started to come up with a new way yeah. right, to, to handle the records of a transaction. And they went from single entry accounting. I bought five sheep at a market to double entry accounting. And so now Stephen goes to a market, he buys five sheep and you pay $5, right? So now we have our, our debit and our credit and you put this down on, on your ledger. And so you have double entry accounting. And it, and it remembers, right? It remembers what you bought, the assets that you own, and what went out to buy it. That system, right? That system, that accounting system, double entry accounting, that system was created in the 15th century, right? So 700 years ago, double entry accounting. Today, 700 years later, every single bank, every single corporation, every single government, everything in the world runs on 700-year-old analog antiquated double-entry accounting. Now, it was an innovation in the 1400s, but it's not an innovation anymore, and everybody still uses it. And because it's an analog system, it's terrible. It's terrible for a number of reasons, mostly because it's not immutable, right? You can change the books and records. It's a private system, and whoever controls the books and records, they could just change the books and records. And so for the last 700 years, right, centuries, we've seen devastating fraud in every industry, in every government, because humans, they make their own records privately, right? And, and then they can change their own records privately. And guess the only way to figure out if somebody's committed a fraud on a double entry ledger accounting technology, you have to have other humans come in and audit it, Right. And that's really, really difficult because people are really smart about hiding bad things that they do. And so we've seen devastating fraud in every industry because we have an old antiquated accounting technology created 700 years ago that runs the entire world, right? The world runs on this technology. Stephen, can you name another technology so important to humanity that has not been changed or innovated in 700 years? I don't know. Here I'm thinking to, you know, like some Taleb, Taleb example where he'll say, oh, look, people are using like spoons or knives and forks still or, you know, the wheel because why reinvent the wheel, right? Um, but I mean, look, the more serious answer, I think with Bitcoin, I mean, hypothetically, people could say, well, even on a Bitcoin standard, there might still be people who are, you know, doing fraud uh, or let's uh, say uh, not repaying back if let's say the ledger is not all um you know is is not not everything is happening on chain per se or if let's say the the pathway that we go down maybe there's not as much of a uh like a proof of reserves aspect of it um but i mean nevertheless i think we've got to bring it back though i think the important point that you do rightly raise and i think as an accountant there's definitely an insight there is around this whole uh, triple entry accounting aspect of it. And I think that's, that's certainly the interesting part. And I think that's, I think that's what you're keying into, right? Yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So I start, sometimes I go too long. It stop me if I start talking about accounting for too much. Uh, but, 
But uh, yeah, so so what you have now, what you have now, what the Bitcoin network fixes, right? So in 2008, we have the third innovation to accounting. And, and as you just said, it's, it's the triple entry. So what you have is you have a debit and a credit. And now what the Bitcoin network's innovation is, is you have a series of nodes and servers that are distributed globally and they're running the network. And, and so you have a debit and a credit. It goes through the nodes and servers, which audit every transaction as it's written. And once it gets confirmed by the network, it's then written to the triple entry, right? So you have a debit and a credit. You have a system. You have a digital system self-audit. After the self-audit is completed, it's written to a public and immutable ledger. Now, what that does is it eliminates all on-chain fraud. The books and the records, yeah, human, you always have a human trust risk, but you can you can bank on the fact that the ledger has been self-audited in real time every transaction. And so that that ability to audit transactions in real time through this proof of work network, that is the innovation of Bitcoin. For the first time in human history, we have an immutable, self-audited chain of transactions that's never existed before. So what people don't realize most of the time is that this proof of work network that runs the Bitcoin transactions and then audit it, audits them and then writes it to the triple entry, that is the innovation. And that will change the world because as you change accounting, how people conduct transactions and, and how they record them and how then they rely on them and you change the audit process, you change the ancillary products that come with it because there's no more fraud on chain. It's impossible. And so that's the innovation. And so I realized that this the word blockchain Right. It's a silly word for an accounting ledger. And more importantly, I learned that the word miners, which I still dislike to this day, uh, denotes just a computer server. All it is is a server in a data center that acts as the accountant to the network between two parties. And so in 2011, when I realized that this was a real technology, it's not just digital video game money. It's not just used to buy drugs on the internet. There's an underlying importance of it. And the innovation of that importance is the first accounting innovation in 700 years. And here's where I was wrong. I thought the accounting innovation would take foot before the commodity innovation. And I was wrong on that. But I did say in 2011 that I want to participate in this network as a hobby, as an accountant. And so I, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to def- help protect and, you know, grow the network. And we started mine. I started a, a mining business in 2012 and we were mining in a closet in Las Vegas. And then over the next several years, I bought everything you could buy. And uh, most of it didn't work. And uh, half the time it didn't show up. But I would buy whatever manufacturers popped up with whatever new equipment you could buy. And we, uh, me and, and, uh, and, and the kids that were working for me, uh, we, we really, uh, I, I just, I was enthralled by, by the industry. I was, I was really uh, curious to see where it went. And I want, and, and because you know it's real, 
you know that it's and how important it is. I knew it was just going to keep growing. And so I, w- I would talk to my friends about it or people that I was, had investments with or people that I was in. Uh, I'm in this YPO group and my buddies in YPO were, would call me an idiot. You know, I tell them, oh, you got to buy Bitcoin in 2012, you know, when it was $40. And they're like, you're an idiot. It's a scam. And I'm like, no, it isn't. Let's talk about accounting. <laughs> you know, And they're like, no more accounting talk. Uh, but so I spent a long time talking about it. In 2016, I just saw how the world was going. And, and uh, we had a lot of problems everywhere in messaging. And so uh, I decided that I wanted to work on blockchain infrastructure full time. At the time, I had three or four different data centers that I was sending. A, I, I had outgrown my closet uh, in, in this building we were in. And we had started to send equipment to data centers around the U.S. And there wasn't very many available, but they would all fail. They all failed for a variety of different reasons. I sent equipment to upstate Washington. Uh, I sent that equipment all over the East Coast. I sent equipment to tier three data centers, uh, some of them in Georgia. And the one thing they all had in common was I had a problem anywhere I sent equipment to. And so in 2016, I decided that really in the world, there was no enterprise grade level infrastructure facility to send the equipment to. And so I looked around the U.S. for an ideal location to build an enterprise grade level facility. And I found a facility after looking at a lot in North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains. And the Appalachian Mountains are special because the United States government in the 1940s, as critical infrastructure, they built a series of hydroelectric plants to power the Manhattan Project. So up in that Tennessee Valley, they, they built the Manhattan Project. And, and in order to create a nuclear bomb, you need a lot of energy. And so they created dozens of these hydroelectric plants. And after, after the Manhattan Project was over, they had all this stranded renewable energy up in the Appalachian Mountains and manufacturing businesses found that area. So you saw Levi Strauss, American Thread, all these old school manufacturing and textile industries moved up into the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, after that, after all these big manufacturing facilities moved to the Appalachian Mountains, in America, they enacted NAFTA. And what, and what NAFTA did was it encouraged all of these factories to close down and move to Mexico. And so they all closed down all of them. And so these burgeoning communities that had been around for decades went from 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 people to when I got to Marble, North Carolina, which is where our first facility is, uh, the population was 400 or 500 people. It had decimated this town. And under Obama, he labeled all of these areas uh, opportunity zones that were distraught or devastated over, over some policies that took place uh, several years before he was there. And, and, uh, and people spent a lot of money trying to build out these opportunity zones. Um, in 2017, I believe, uh, we formed CORE. Uh, me and a gentleman named Mike Levitt, who's currently the CEO, uh, we formed CORE. He became the chairman. And I, I literally moved into a cabin in Marble, North Carolina, in the Appalachian Mountains, and started hiring thermodynamic engineers from NASA and Google to build out this facility. And we quickly realized that the traditional engineers, these 
these guys that went to MIT and had PhDs, they would, I would fly them out and it was really difficult to get people to marble because besides the fact it's very remote, there's no hotels really. And so we had to find like little houses to put them in. You know, sometimes they'd come stay with me. And so what would happen was these, these thermodynamic engineers would come up and they would look at the building with their other team and they'd say, we can't build in this. We need a Google box. We need, we need the billion dollar box that was in my MIT you know, textbook, right? And we're like, that's not what you get. You get this building. This is the building. And the building that I bought was a 230, 250,000 square foot building on 70 acres up in Marble, North Carolina. And so it had some challenging aspects of it. It had these water-cooled towers that circled water as the way to cool, use air cooling through the water uh, tower to, to cool the buildings. And that's what they used 40 years ago. And so eventually what we realized after going through several independent uh, bid companies, trying to hire third-party contractors, we realized we had to do this in-house. So we hired all those people in-house and, and we all just lived up there until we built it out. And that facility uh, was, I think it's the, the, at the time in 2017, it was the first large scale infrastructure building in the U.S. Uh, we've, we filled it up and then we ended up building uh, in six other states. I think that's what we've, uh, we're public now, traded under the, the cost ticker sign C-O-R-Z. Uh, and and since, that, since the 2017 birth of that first building in North Carolina, we're now also located, we have buildings in Georgia, we're in Kentucky, we're in North Dakota, we're in Texas, and I think we just announced, yeah, it was announced in Oklahoma. And so uh, we have a number of states that we're conducting business in, and, and that was the genesis of, of CORE. Uh, just also to clarify today, uh, I have no operating position at CORE. I am on the board. I'm a co-chairman of the board. And I am also uh, what they what they called the uh, chief vision officer, and so I think I think they like me just talking about accounting <laughs> outside of the <laughs> operations. But uh, that's really what we're focused on is protecting against overregulation. I think regulation is going to happen no matter what, and some of it is probably good. But if you overregulate this industry, you will chill the technology. And as we saw what happened in China, right, one of the biggest governments on the planet Earth, right, they, they banned Bitcoin. And what happened, Stefan? Huh. Nothing, nothing. Bitcoin just moved, just moved to geographic locations that had greater freedom. And now here we are, you know, they gave America a trillion dollar present. And I think it's a good warning to all governments that if you ban it, nothing happens. It'll just move. The technology just moves to jurisdictions that create greater protections and have better freedoms within their uh, constitutions. And and so that's where we are right now. That's kind of my genesis story. I tried to do it quickly, but sure. I don't think I did. No, no, that's that, that, I think that's all valuable perspective. And I think, as you mentioned, Bitcoin and freedom and Bitcoin as a liberty uh, enhancing technology. I think this is something you've also spoken about. And I think it's, it's it comes across at least in, in some of what I was reading about you on your on Twitter and so on. So if you could tell us a little bit about that aspect of it, like why do you believe Bitcoin is important for liberty? What kind of impacts are, do you see coming from further adoption of Bitcoin? So 
and and again, I'm going to go right back to the uh, accounting aspect of this. The proof of work network, which is this decentralized distributed node system, right? In order to hack like a traditional hack of the Bitcoin network, you would have to hack all of the nodes. Now, which is different than a 51% attack. Uh, you, you would have to hack, in order to hack the system, you have to hack everything simultaneously, which is impossible. And so hacking the Bitcoin network, it's impossible. Well, so now what does that mean? Well, all the assets that you have now, if it's not on the Bitcoin network, they're held in a centralized repository. So there's, you, you have assets in this, in this, in a bank, or you have assets at a, at a stock house, clearing house. It, if somebody wants to, they can access that and confiscate your assets at any time. On the Bitcoin network, because you cannot hack it, only because of the proof of work network. Okay, the only reason it's unhackable is because it lives on a proof of work network. Because it can't be hacked, nobody can seize your assets. And so, when Stefan downloads a digital wallet and puts a Bitcoin on it, it doesn't matter where you live. You have private property. And it doesn't matter what your government says about private property. You have private property because nobody can seize your asset. Well, in America, that doesn't seem like such a big concern. I mean, maybe now after after we see everybody seizing everything, if you don't like their political views. But historically, we don't con- we're not concerned that the banks are just going to start seizing our assets uh, or the government will without due process. And so you start thinking in terms of on a global basis and you realize that in America, where most of the people that I talk to about this live, we only represent 350 million people out of 8 billion people, which is roughly 4% of the population on the planet Earth. The other 96%, they have different problems than us. And the statistic I always use is Alex Gladstein, because I love what he writes, He has a great statistic that in the world, 87% of the humans that live in the world live in autocratic or authoritarian regimes with double or triple digit inflation. And so that number represents about 7 billion people that go to sleep at night, not knowing if their assets are going to be still where they left them uh, so they can feed their children. And so you have 7 billion people that have a private property problem in that it's not respected where they live. Well, now if you have a digital asset on a digital wallet in any one of these territories, doesn't matter what your government says, you have private property. And so for over half the population, that's there is no private property. And then when you look at double or triple digit inflation, you get up to 7 billion people with all those problems. So the first thing it does is it creates private property for 8 billion people on the planet Earth. There's never been a network that's been created that's allowed 8 billion people to have private property. And the reason is, and this is what gets overlooked, because of the proof of work network. That's it. That's the innovation. The second part to that is the other big problem in the world are most humans are not banked. And what that means is they can't store value. They can't remit payments. They can't payment process. They live outside, outside of the norms of the traditional banking system. They don't qualify. They can't get in. And so even in America, where we feel we're financially privileged, somewhere around 60 million people, they call it underbanked. I don't really know what that means. There's a lot of different definitions for it, but they're underbanked. And I think almost 10, 6 to 10 million people are estimated to be unbanked. 
And so you have this banking problem. The banking problem is solved in the same manner the private property problem is solved. If you have a digital asset on a digital wallet and it's Bitcoin, you can now store value without fear of seizure or confiscation. You can remit money anywhere in the world without being censored and you can payment process. You can transact anywhere on the globe with nobody being able to stop you. So what does Bitcoin do? Well, it provides private property to 8 billion people and it provides banking to 8 billion people on the planet Earth. Both of those are massively important. They fix a lot of problems. And as we're seeing every day all over the world, there are going to be legacy institutions that don't like this because now they don't get, they don't get to control everybody within their borders. They can't just seize their property or make them use the legacy systems that they set up. And so we'll see this problem forever for a long time because the, and again, this is accounting and Stefan, stop me if I get too, too boring on the accounting side, but there's never been a manner in which two people can conduct business over geographic space and time. So Stefan and I, if we don't know each other and I'm in Asia and you're in Europe, there's no way for you to send me value. And that, that's this super complicated thought problem called the Byzantine general problem. Uh, I summarize it really shortly. It's, it's that if you're going to send me value over space and time, and we don't know each other, if you sent me value and I didn't get it and I don't know you, I feel like you didn't send it, right? So bad actors on the side of you. If I tell you that I didn't get it and you sent it, You'd say, I know you got it. I sent it. You're a bad actor. And so because there's no way for us to do that, there's been no way over centuries for humans to conduct business, peer-to-peer business over geographic space. And so what happened What happened to allow us to conduct business with each other? Well, a third-party verification system popped up, right? So now there's party C. You know, me and Stefan are party A and B. And now... Stefan sends his value to party C. I send my value to party C. They independently verify. They say, okay, Stefan, Darren, we got the value. Transaction culminated, right? And, and they took a fee for doing that, a transaction verification fee. Well, what did those transaction verifiers turn into? They turned into banks. Those are the first banks. All banks' primary function historically has been, has been to confirm a transaction between two parties and charge a fee. What happened next to banks? Well, if you if I if you sent a million dollars to the bank, I don't want them to send that to my house. They ask me if I want to custodian my money there. And I say yes, I'll custodian my money there. And so the second the second thing with banks popped up, their second business line, custodianship of assets. So transaction fees first custodian of assets second, because transactions are flowing through them, it's natural they would start custodianship of money. Well, guess what their next revenue generation became? Lending, right? They want to lend, they have all these assets on their books. Why can't we lend them out? And so they went to various governments on the planet in America. We let them lend out 10 times the amount of assets on their books. So they take the million dollars that you gave me in our transaction, and they lend out nine million more to whoever they want 
And, and now they take a big fee in interest because they borrow that money for, you know, a quarter percent or zero, and they're lending it out at seven. And so banks make a big fee on the third part, on their third business line. Now, that all is predicated on the fact that two humans cannot conduct business with each other over geographic time and space until now, right? Until now. So for the first time ever, Stefan sends me value. I see his wallet. I send Stefan value. He can see my wallet. And we both see it get self-audited on the network. And it's written to an immutable blockchain where it can never be rescinded. And it's recorded forever. Transaction over. We didn't need a bank. You didn't need a third-party verification system. And so this whole legacy system that's, that's existed forever just lost their primary functionality of verifying two transactions between two parties. And now if we're not verifying a transaction through them, we don't need them to custodian our money. Back to the show in a moment. Lend at HODL HODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can use this to lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously. So if you have some Bitcoin and you would prefer to borrow against a small portion of that stack, this might help you in terms of not having to sell. So with this platform, you can sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stablecoins without verification. Now, on the other hand, if you have stablecoins such as USDT, you can lend that out and earn some high returns. You are issuing out an over-collateralized loan with the full interest guaranteed, and all that interest is paid at the end of the loan. So with Lend at HODL HODL, you're lending and borrowing stablecoins on your terms at your desired interest rates. So this is really Bitcoin DeFi. So go and check it out. The website is lend.hodlhodl.com. If you are in the market for Bitcoin security hardware, well, you've got to check out coinkite.com. They are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. Now, you can use the cold card to generate your Bitcoin private keys, and it can also sign your messages when you're ready to broadcast those transactions. So you can use the cold card easily with wallets like Spectre, Sparrow, Electrum, Blue Wallet, and others, and it's got all sorts of features. My favorite is this idea that you can air gap your card, your cold card, from the computer. So this allows you to help keep the private keys segregated from a hot online connected device. And don't forget, you can also order your metal seed backup plates on the website over at coinkite.com. They've got a range of gear there. So go to coinkite.com and order there. And finally, Unchained Capital. If you need to secure your coins and remove single points of failure, you can use the Unchained Vault product to bring two hardware wallets and have the third key controlled by Unchained on your behalf. Now, this can help you by giving you that peace of mind in knowing that your coins are not able to be stolen just from one location. You can have your keys in two different locations and Unchained represents a third key. Now, if you need guidance on the setup of this you can go and use the concierge onboarding program. So go to unchained.com and select the concierge onboarding program. You will pay up front, you'll get some hardware wallets, and you'll have a video call to teach you how to use them, even if you've never held your private keys before. So this is a great option for you. Go to unchained.com, select that there, and use the code Libera for a discount. Now back to the show. It is a real game changer in that way. And as I mean, as you said, right, it's, it's like understanding a little bit or enough about history about why fiat money came about the way it did now and how the system can be abused or set up in such a way to benefit certain individuals at the expense of 
the everyday individuals. And so I think the point you were making as well that's really important to hammer on is that point that let's say you and I transact using the Bitcoin network, we can now both provably say, hey, I sent you that money. So there's no more kind of, oh, it must be stuck in the mail. No, it's, it's, it's either unconfirmed or it has been confirmed. And now it's, it's in my wallet or it's in your wallet. And that's it. And, and that's the crucial point, I think, that is the, that step forward, the triple entry accounting step forward. Um, but I, and I think for people who are listening, I think the common questions that are coming now are these questions around, is it going to be banned, right? And of course, that might seem like, okay, that's very, you know, that's not going to happen. But, uh, you know, as we record this right now, it's the 14th of March, and there was just recently this vote in the EU relating to this MICA markets in crypto assets, basically a regulation that was essentially going to ban proof of work mining and was effectively going to ban Bitcoin in Europe or in EU, in the EU rather. Um, and so I think that, that to me brings that question of how exactly is this technology going to be adopted? Do you see it like it's about growing a group of individuals and having like some kind of political voting base about it? Or do you see some other way that the technology is adopted and essentially defended against other people who don't necessarily like it for one reason or another? Great questions. A a few different um, topics. I think the, the first one is the growth of it, of this new network. And what we're really dealing with is an unstoppable force, right? The, this thing is, it, you can't stop it. China couldn't stop it, right? So countries that have different governing systems should look at the most authoritarian government on the planet Earth and realize they couldn't stop it. And so how are you going to stop it if if there are greater freedoms, per, you know, protecting your citizens? So the, the ability to stop it exists jurisdictionally. You could try to stop it within your borders, but that's it. Because it's global. It lives decentralized and distributed everywhere all over the planet, even on satellites. And so you'd have to shut off everything. And and this really still exists without the Internet. So there's no way to turn it off, which means that it's going to continue to grow. In 2017, when I decided to, to move to the Appalachian Mountains, I think there were somewhere around 2 point something million people that were estimated to be Bitcoin holders, you know, only a little bit over 2 million. And today it's estimated that it's over 100. And so we 50X'd in the last several years. And we're still early because people still don't understand what this technology is. I think an interesting parallel is the internet. The internet was created, you know, a long time ago, but moved on to civilians, I think in the early 80s. It was estimated maybe 83, 84 civilians started to use it. In 1999, 15 years after people were utilizing the internet, they said, and it, whoever it was, it was, a, it was a well-known magazine. They said that internet, the internet, it's a passing fad and it's going to go away. And that just, they do that with all new technology. Internet democratized information and the people, the gateholders of information, they didn't like that. They didn't like everybody having access to that much information that they couldn't control. And really, and again, you know, I hate to just keep talking about accounting. This new Bitcoin network democratizes accounting. It takes accounting out of the shadows, out of the back rooms, out of these private, insulated corporations and governments. And it puts it on the Internet, available publicly 24 hours a day, and it's completely audited. So you can trust whatever you see. 
There's no human element in it. And so you get like, you get these brand new technologies that are just starting and, and, and people always have your kind of your own time zone and you say, oh, this is going too slow. It's going really fast. It's going really fast. There's a hundred million users, uh, governments all over the planet have legislation in front of them talking about it. The FUD has changed over the years. Uh, most of my questions were on the United States banning Bitcoin. And by executive order, the other day, they just said they're going to protect the innovation of Bitcoin. Now, how that plays out over the over the next you know administration and 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 process to to regulate it with all of these different agencies, we don't know. But we do know that the lobbying groups for Bitcoin have grown massively and are and are making themselves known. As you just said, this EU vote, you really had a hundred million Bitcoin voters, in my opinion, all over the world trying to figure out why the EU would ban proof-of-work mining when it's such a negligible footprint. The If you looked at, and, and, and I could talk about energy for a while, but I'm, I'm going to try not to, but I will tell you one statistic. In the EU, they generate fifteen over 15,000 terawatt hours of energy every year. That's how much energy they generate. The Bitcoin network there uses 30 of it. It's an inconsequential number. It means nothing. It's less than a fraction of a fraction of a percent. And so... When you utilize energy as your argument to stop a network, you better have your facts right that it uses a lot of energy. I think the Chinese did the same thing. They said, we're turning it off because it uses too much energy and releases too much carbon. Well, we know the numbers for how much energy is generated in China from coal. We do. We know that number. It's 22,000 terawatt hours a year of coal energy generation. 22,000 terawatt hours a year. They turned off the Bitcoin network within its border. Even if you ascribed 60% of the network to China, it was less than 100 terawatt hours of energy a year. So a nation that uses 25,000, somewhere between 22 and 25,000 terawatt hours of coal energy a year just turned off 100 terawatt hours of coal energy if all of it was used in the regions that were coal energized. But they weren't. In the, in the South China and Sichuan region, that was mostly hydroelectric power and was very seasonal depending on if how, you know, the rainy season in China, which is uh, a whole other discussion. But you can determine very easily how much energy a nation generates and how much energy that nation uses to run proof of work networks within its border. Uh, one other, and the, I do remember who said these, in 2017... When I was building out the first facility in Marble, North Carolina, Newsweek and the World Economic Forum, I know you've seen these articles too, they both came out and they said the same thing coincidentally, right? Oh, by accident, they both said the same thing. They said the Bitcoin network's so bad environmentally. We need to turn off right now. And if we don't turn it off in three years, in 2020, the Bitcoin network, and this is amazing, but they both said it, so it must be true, World Economic Forum and Newsweek both said the Bitcoin network will consume all of the world's energy by 2020. All of it. Every last piece of every watt, every volt, it's all gone. Everyone's going to die. And and guess what happened? They were wrong. They were wrong because we're on the internet right now using electricity. And so we must not have destroyed the world. But were they close to being correct? Was the World Economic Forum, who has giant think tanks, 
and really smart people there, were they close to being right? Not even. Well, we know the answer, <laughs> right? We know the answer. They're not, even, they're not even in the ballpark. We know how much energy is generated globally, right, on an analyzed basis from all energy sources because everybody posts it, British Petroleum, Exxon, all of the energy generation uh, generators, they all post how much energy they create. And every year, there's about 160,000 terawatt hours of energy generation that's that's created. And of that, we know the Bitcoin network, somewhere around 200 terawatt hours, you can fluctuate up or down, you know, from 150 to 250, depending on what you read. But whatever that is, it's today, we're two years after this prediction of the world ending because the Bitcoin network uses all the energy. And we're using 0.00015 percent or you know 0.15 percent of the world's energy it's an inconsequential number most other heavy industries when they figure out how much energy they use on a global basis they round off that number by one or two percent and so the bitcoin network is literally a rounding error to other major industries and so on a global basis all these predictions were intellectually dishonest uh, you don't see anybody coming out and, and apologizing. You know, really sorry. Uh, Darren Feinstein had to answer 10,000 questions in 2017. You know, the mayor would call me, you know, and the people in these towns were like, you're destroying the planet. I don't know if this is a good industry for us. And so I had to figure out how to rebuttal that. And I'm curious as well to get your perspective here, because obviously we're, we're all bullish on Bitcoin here and we think it's going up a lot more. And over time, that will necessitate, it's extremely likely that the network is going to keep growing. And so while the Bitcoin network today may be a rounding error, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, and it may not be, what would the argument be then? And of course, I have my own ideas on how I would answer this, but how would you answer that? <laughs> Good. I want to hear your answer when I'm done. The trans So there's two different ways to look at the growth of the Bitcoin network. Uh, the first are on transaction basis. And additional transactions on the on the Bitcoin blockchain, they don't create any additional use or need for energy. They're all within each block. And so the trend, these tr anybody who tries to equate energy growth of this network to additional transactions has no idea how the Bitcoin network works because a block is a block. Whatever's in the block is in the block. And so the next, the only way you can measure the growth of this network is on the security of the network. How much equipment will get plugged in to run the network as the accountants and as security for the network, how much gets plugged in? And you can look at that through the how efficient the equipment is. And that's this part of the equation is where people just get it wrong. And so you see a lot of people say, OK, uh, in 2017, they were using, you know, before S9s came out, you know, S3s or, you know, something that. That was very inefficient. I think the first ASIC came out in 2013. It was like a one tera ash piece of equipment. And so they, whenever they take into account future energy for the protection and security of the network, they look at the equipment that, that's in existence now, and then they linearly drive it up through whatever, re, however they decide they're going to run it up. And it always comes into like some insanely, some, some kind of Armageddon. Right. Like, oh, this th this will consume all the energy on the, in the solar system. Like, the sun can't even provide enough energy. And so what they're what they're doing wrong is they're not accounting for the efficiencies in the chips, in the chips. And so the first ASICs that were produced were literally 40,000 percent less efficient 
than the ASICs that are being plugged in right now. They're, the, the current ASICs are 400 times faster. Which, and what that means is for the same amount of energy. So the metric really is joules per terahash. How many joules do you need to run a terahash? And that has exponentially increased in efficiencies throughout the entire history of this network. And so people don't take into account these efficiencies. And so you have to first understand that the transaction volume doesn't matter. Uh, that's not going to give you an increase in, in energy. But the security and the accountants of the network, those will increase. But how are they going to increase? Is it linear, right? Or is it a factor of what's the efficiencies for chips, which we've seen are, are monumental uh, uh, changes on a, on a, just globally on, in every industry? And so the best the best guesses the best guesses are going to take into account that we're a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the world's energy right now, and as the chips keep increasing in efficiencies, we're going to maintain a level somewhere around here. Uh, and 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 so I'm not personally concerned with the, that footprint. I think the the metric that people like to inflate is that. And so they have to understand that the, the, to look back at the history of this network to see that the efficiencies of the chips is what creates a, a demand way below what anybody predicts the, the network will, will use in terms of global energy use. And on a global energy use, we've already talked about it, it's an inconsequential number. It's not, it's not an inconsequential number on a regional or local use. And so people confuse all those things. They're like, oh, this is really bad in this one small town. It's like, well, that's true. That's true because they maybe didn't account for proper grid structures and transmission lines and, and grid stability. But that doesn't affect the global energy use. And so we're seeing now, and all of our core scientific's contracts, and it's publicly stated, they all have uh, curtailment programs. On, so, so we help to protect the local grids. And, uh, and, and we work very closely in, in all types of circumstances and situations where we may need to curtail quickly. Uh, I think the, the three reasons to curtail energy would be emergency, some kind of weather event or something really bad happens to the grid. Uh, we'll shut off within seconds. Core Scientific will shut off and we'll redirect that power to wherever they need it to go. There's controlled load circumstances where we'll shut off. And then there's economic reasons. If they call us up and ask us for an economic reason, we'll, we'll, we'll power down too. So uh, we work with all of the local grids to provide that base load energy back to, the, back to the transmission lines, back to people and citizens and companies that need that energy. And we're really, because we're that first source of extra energy, we're, we're, protect, we're, we're literally, and I mean, it, it's an actual fact that if you have Bitcoin miners on your grid and you have an emergency event, we make your grid stronger because we'll shut off first. Other industries can't do that, right? Traditional data centers, an AWS data center, they can't power down. They're running traffic lights and air traffic control and hospitals, right? If they down power, people are going to die. And so our industry truly does on a local level make grids stronger. And so I know I kind of got a little bit off topic on your question on the future energy use of the network, but 
Hopefully that answered your question. I also want to hear, Stefan, your answer. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you gave a great answer. I mean, fundamentally, uh, it is confusion. I think many listeners of this podcast tend to understand a bit of that nuance. They know that the incremental transaction on the Bitcoin network is not adding some massive new amount in terms of energy usage. I mean, the broader answer from my point of view is that Bitcoin is worth it. Even if it was 100% fossil fuel powered, even if it was taking up you know, massively more, because you really have to zoom out and think, what does Bitcoin replace? And if you think about it as replacing the gold standard or the fiat standard, where we've seen this, this century of massive warfare between nations, where what we're really talking about with Bitcoin is an easier way easier way to come to consensus on what is the correct state of the property ownership. We're doing that rather than going to war. We're doing that rather than all of this other infrastructure that is out there. And so when you really zoom out, it's going to be worth it. But of course, that takes time to prosecute that argument for people. And of course, for some people, they, they need an easier way to get started with Bitcoin. And then eventually later on, figure out, wow, really, like this is like this is where that's where this thing is going longer term. So I'm also curious as well, because things like certain qualities or permission, the permissionless nature of Bitcoin, how much of that uh, is important in like to give an example to make it a little more concrete uh, fungibility? Is that going to become an issue further down the line if, let's say, as an example, there's, you know, there's whitelisted coins and blacklisted coins, or if there's, let's say, green coins and quote-unquote dirty coins, will that be an impact further down the line and would that actually challenge the value of Bitcoin for all of us? Listen, there's, there's several fundamental principles of Bitcoin. You know, if not the most important is fungibility. People that play around with the fungibility of Bitcoin don't understand what the technology is. Uh, the, uncensored, the uncensored nature of it, the, the ability to have private property because it can't be seized. So within a jurisdiction, there's probably ways to do these weird things to certain addresses. Uh, but on a global basis, there's no way to do any of that. And most of the people that I've talked to that were concerned about this, um, if it was illicit activity. So there's either environmental illicit activity problem uh, if, you, if you get down to the granular level of why they want this. On an illicit activity level, it makes no sense because historically, how did people commit crimes? They use cash, right? And if if somebody gives, you know, cash to another party, that cash can never be tracked. They can just go do whatever they want to do with that cash. If if you give that party a Bitcoin, it lives on an immutable accounting ledger forever. That's been audited, tracked, and then can be tracked and traced forever. And so it's literally the worst methodology to commit a crime. You, if you're going to commit a crime, you don't want to do it on a network that's going to track and trace you on its own forever. It's a really bad idea. Well, you want to use cash because cash has been used for centuries to, to evade laws. And so I, I, you know, and I'm familiar with a lot of the, the, these agencies that track this and they prefer criminal activity on a Bitcoin blockchain because track. That's why you saw the ransomware people, you know, it stupidly asked for Bitcoin. And then as soon as they off-ramped the Bitcoin to a centralized exchange, it got seized you know, immediately. So uh, the illicit activity uh, narrative doesn't really hold up, in my opinion. And then on the energy and the, and the nation side, most of the people, they don't understand. They're like, well, we don't want to do business with China, theoretically. And I'm like, okay, 
So you're going to somehow have a Bitcoin that has no, that, that you're going to label as like, you know, hasn't touched China. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, how do you think it was mined? Right. What, what equipment do you think was used to mine that Bitcoin? Right. It's all Chinese. It was made in China or, you know, some other Asian country. And the firmware, most of this equipment runs on, is also made in China. So, so or, you know, or Malaysia or wherever it comes from. You can't control that. And so it really, again, makes no sense there. But if you look at the U.N. statistics, you know, on the illicit activity side, somewhere around $2 trillion a year is laundered through traditional banking systems, right? And I don't want to go into specific banks, but if you look back over the history of the Bitcoin network in the last, you know, 10 or 12 or 13 years, a lot of banks, not a lot of banks, certain banks, some of the, some of the top five, top 10 banks on the planet Earth, they paid their entire market value in fines for illicit illegal activity that occurred at the bank. And so, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world. This is not, this network is not any of the top problems that, that we face globally. So, you know, the, the limitations that some people, you know, lots of people like to be relevant, right? They want to create some new company. If you're startup, if you're going to, if you're going to create a startup in Bitcoin, and try to eliminate fungibility. You have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> it's like the whole nature of the of the technology. I think that's an excellent answer. And uh, one other question and area to chat about, obviously, as a US-based miner, you probably have some views on this, but should it be seen as an issue if, let's say, lots of the hash rate is going into America? Or is that seen as like, that's a good thing because, you know, America first? Or is it seen more, like, do you see it more like, the more the hash rate is distributed around the world, the better, because maybe it's harder to shut down the Bitcoin network, or at least to try to control it or capture it. I think hash rate distribution globally is important. I think that's important. I think America has a history of protecting private property. So if if, if you're going to have a large percentage of the network in any country, this is a pretty good one to have. But I also think it should be distributed Globally, uh, people should be creating businesses in, and I think governments will too, in certain jurisdictions that may dwarf what we're doing here in America. But I, I, I think everybody should build more infrastructure regardless of where you are. I think it's good for the network. At the end of the day, you saw 60% of the network was in China and then they, they shut it off. Who cares? The, the Bitcoin network doesn't care. It's just, you know, what... You know, what's the what's the what are the laws in every country and how do you protect investments? Really? I mean, you're looking at you don't want to go to a jurisdiction, raise, you know, through debt or equity, 100 million dollars for equipment. And, you know, one day call up and say, you know, how come our miners aren't working? And, and they say, what miners? <laughs> I don't have any miners here. So I think there are some risks globally to private property or corporate property and those you just weigh that with with the rest of it, but I I think distribution's important. Do you believe it would make sense for governments to mine Bitcoin? I mean, obviously there's El Salvador who've publicly mentioned this, but do you believe it makes sense for them to do that, or do you actually think it makes more sense for it to be done by private companies and and individuals, of course? I, I don't think we get to choose who mines Bitcoin. All right, governments eventually will mine Bitcoin. That's a certainty, and so. 
you know, it'll be like a Bitcoin arms race, in my opinion, in, in the next decade. Uh, and so all of that just makes the network stronger. It just makes the network stronger. I, I think we're not going to be able to. I mean, if you saw the events in the last few years, nobody could predict any of this stuff. So uh, the, what's going to happen next on the Bitcoin network? I don't none of us. It'll be something that we didn't even think about. We'd be like, that's crazy. But OK. Uh, but if I had to guess, governments would would build their own Bitcoin network. They're going to print their own fiat currencies. They're going to buy Bitcoin network equipment and Bitcoin to protect their FX, their federal, their, their reserves. So going on that same idea, as I'm sure you saw even in the recent uh, Biden executive order on the 9th of March, there was mention of central bank digital currencies. Do you see them as a threat to Bitcoin or just more like an orthogonal thing to Bitcoin or are they going to capture mind share of people? Central bank d- digital currencies or you know, surveillance coins, control coins, whatever you want to call them. Do you, do you view them as like a, a way of co-opting of Bitcoin or do you just see them as like they're just a separate thing? I mean, it's the opposite of Bitcoin, right? So I don't, I don't think I see them as a competitor product. It's probably the scariest technology a government could, could force its citizens to use that's ever been invented in the history of bad technologies. The central bank digital currencies that eventually will be issued by governments across the world include, I don't know, you know, I don't really understand how it's utilized in China. I know they have that digital wand. I know they used it at the Olympics. What it is, is it's, it's programmable money, right? So the money lives in the, whatever you, and what I'm always shocked at is why are the banks and the credit card companies not going crazy? Because this eliminates all banks. You don't need to store money at a bank anymore. You don't need a credit card company to process payments. In China, Visa has an exclusive with the Olympics to to process payments. Except this year, this year, I don't know what percentage they use the digital wand, CBDC, in my opinion, in violation of the exclusivity of Visa, and nothing happened. They, They just wiped out whatever that percentage of Visa was. You're not going to be able to fight, you know, to use Visa exclusively in China when the Chinese government wants you to use the digital wand. But it disrupts all payment methods that exist today. Every single payment company, if a territory accepts a CBDC, you're irrelevant. If you're a bank and and your territory or jurisdiction accepts a CBDC, you're irrelevant because the money now lives on a government server, right? And it's programmable. So they can do anything they want with it. They don't like your political views. They just shut your account off, right? They don't like a restaurant. They just shut it off. They can't even accept your money. And so the government now gets to choose what doctors you go to, what websites you're on, what car you buy, where you buy your gas, you know, where your kids get to go to school. Every single, I mean, if you saw in the, in the EU, they, they say some scary stuff. They said, we want to implement a CBDC so people only make sensible purchases, <laughs> okay? Whose who's definition is sensible, right? And so and it, they said the words sensible and essential. Well, what's essential? What does that mean? I can't spend the money the way I want. And now, and I always say this guy's name wrong, and, and I've never, Keynesian economics. How do you say this guy's name? Yeah. It's Keynesian. John Maynard Keynes and Keynesian. Keynesian. Yeah. yeah, everyone always corrects yeah. me. So, yeah. so Keynesian, they don't believe in saving money. Right. No saving money. It's consumption, conspicuous based consumption model. Right. And so now Keynesian economics 
people are running the CBDCs and they don't like you saving money. So they give you an expiration date, right? Your money goes poof if you don't spend it. And now how do you secure your life? How do you have savings to protect you in bad times? So it just, it's, or it, I mean, if you want to talk about something that's Orwellian and dangerous, that's the most dangerous thing that people don't realize is dangerous. You don't want your money programmed by an administration, the government, and it, it would be catastrophic. It's a, it's a catastrophic technology that's just ripe for exploitation, and it's it's awful. I don't see it as a it's not a threat to Bitcoin. It's it's a threat to humanity. <laughs> I'm with you, Darren, and I think to I mean I I broadly agree with you, right? They they are a threat to most common sense, liberty minded individuals out there. But the only point that I would maybe slightly disagree or just maybe add something a little different is some companies will have an incentive to go with it because they want to be in. They want to be part of the in crowd. And they may, from their perspective, they may argue, oh, look, central bank, look, Mr. Central Banker, you don't have the technological capacity to implement a CBDC. Let me do that for you. And that's going to be their in. That's going to be their angle. And there'll be a fight about it. Um, so. Oh, I, I, I fully agree that we will get a large percentage of businesses and people that, you know, you'll get the people that think they can benefit from it, right? So they're going to want to sign up. And then you'll get the people that don't even know what they're doing and they're going to sign up. And so this will be a, this is a, it's just a dangerous technology and it will play out in levels across the world. I'm, I agree with you hundred percent. We will see lots of people sign up and, and, you know, CBDCs are good. You know, they're going to go out and cheerlead it on because they're going to think they could they could benefit by it. But at the end of the day, th those companies and those people, if the administrations are short, right? People are in power for a short amounts of time. And those people eventually will reap the consequences, right? Or so the consequences of, of a new administration coming in and maybe not liking them. And so it's just dangerous. It's just da super dangerous technology. I do agree with you. I think we have a very uphill battle to see that it doesn't get implemented. I think it's a shame I think it will. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm torn on whether it will be approved or not in America. I, I certainly hope it won't be. But uh, I don't think I, I, that'll be that'll be a whole regulatory nightmare for how they do it. I mean, and the other problem is name a centralized network that hasn't been hacked. There are none. Yeah. They hack everything. So now they hack your country's CBDC network. All the money is gone. <laughs> what, what, how do they? What do they roll back the clock? How do they stop? Like it, it's you know it will get hacked. It will certainly get hacked. And so how do they deal with that? Yeah, there's going to be all kinds of privacy ramifications. As I recall, maybe even just a few years ago, I think it was a large percentage of Americans had their social security numbers doxed, and you know Equifax had a big hack even a little while back as well, and a lot of people's information was just doxxed out as part of that and so the same kinds of things could happen with cbdc's also 100 percent, 100 every doctor you you know i go to you go to any anywhere you eat where you go on vacation what you spent at the hotel that's all on a cbdc record digitally recorded forever and now anybody can access that and anybody can dox it you know they they can dox all of it will get doxxed. Everything you'll ever do on a CBDC, you should just figure at what point is going to get doxxed. And so I think then it comes down to what's the right kind of counter? What's the right kind of way to 
help stop that kind of future and actually make it a better one. And perhaps it comes down to making that argument about why people who value liberty should be pro-Bitcoin and why people should see Bitcoin as an innovation and as actually a very beneficial, socially beneficial technology. So I think that probably brings me to that other question that I'm, I'm curious your views on that also is whether you have any thoughts on the right kind of approach here. Is it lobbying? Is it trying to support Bitcoin-friendly political candidates? Is it education? What kinds of things do you see as being useful for those of us who are Bitcoin advocates, supporters, holders, etc.? It's that you, you nailed it. It's lobbying and education. Uh, and, and I'm very, that, that's pretty much all I do these days is I talk to people to educate them on the importance of the innovation of Bitcoin. What, what, why is it important? Why can't you just use some proof of stake coin to do the same thing? And I think there's a lot of confusion on that. Uh, there's a lot of confusion on why it's important to provide liberty and freedom and private property rights and banking rights. And how does it happen? How do, how do they actually get that? And so some people like to get granular on that. And so I, you know, we we take a, a very active role in that. I think the infrastructure bill in America united a lot of proof of work Bitcoin people to say, hey, who's representing us? And so you're seeing, I, I mean, dozens of really smart people joining together in different ways to help educate Washington D.C. out here. And I think it's working. I think people are starting to understand what Bitcoin is and why it's important, and that it's not digital video game money that people buy drugs on the internet with. It, they have to understand that it's very complicated accounting technology that changes the world. And so it's it's just a massive groundswell of everybody lobbying and educating the other people that do not understand the importance of this technology. I think it's also important to point out that there's 100 million Bitcoin users and growing, as you said, right? This network continues to grow because of the benefits it provides to the users. And the most important people to advocate on behalf of this technology is not me. It's not, you know, you're doing your part, but it's really the users. The 100 million users, they need to go out and make sure that their representatives know how important this technology is to protect within their borders, Right. Because at the end of the day, the Bitcoin network, it doesn't care about a vote in you know, Congress in the U.S. doesn't care at all. But the people that have to live subjugated to those rules, they care. They care. And so the people have to get involved. So the technology isn't the technology is not chilled in the in the jurisdictions that they're in. And that's what's going to be important to drive mass adoption. Right. And then as a result of the adoption, you're increasing the economic and financial liberties of those who participate in this network. And it disrupts lots of legacy networks. And those legacy networks, they're really good at lobbying, right? And they're really good at marketing. And so they've been united in providing a very clear, very negative, uh, very false, but who cares, right? How do you know what's true and not? Like the fact checkers aren't fact checking on behalf of Bitcoin. They're providing this massively negative, very coordinated message about our industry. And the problem our industry's had messaging is that we're all very big on decentralization, right? And independence and free, you know, free, just 
everybody has their own decentralized message. And the problem is we're up against a united front that, that wants to spread misinformation. And so if I say something and then you say something and five other people say something, but it's all a little bit different, but you have one united weight tsunami against us, we lose because they, they're more coordinated. And so Michael Saylor and I, I know you know this, started the Bitcoin Mining Council with some other folks. And the, the purpose of it was to educate the regulators on the actual effects, not the fake uh, Newsweek World Economic Forum version of events, but the actual events and facts related to the energy use of the network. And initially, we got a lot of kickback. People are like, you guys aren't a council. It sounds like Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, like, some of the comments were pretty funny. But the, the fact of the matter is all we are trying to do, and it's important, is to educate people together on what the facts are. Because in this industry, the facts are on our side. The facts on illicit activity, the facts on energy use, they're all positive for us. We're, we're actually subsidizing the, the growth of renewable energy. You just you can pick an area and the facts are positive, but what the legacy folks don't want you to see are the truth, right? So they're, they're, they're circumnavigating that. And so together with all of the users, we can make a big difference. And, and, that's what the, and that's what the Bitcoin Mining Council purpose is. And that's why we still release quarterly numbers on the energy use every quarter, uh, which has been very helpful to me. I talk to people in Washington all the time. It's been very helpful. Um, Michael Saylor has a great, a, a great quote. His quote is, uh, we can be decentralized, but we don't need to be disorganized. <laughs> and so that's what the Bitcoin Mining Council is. At uh, Core Scientific, we've hired a gentleman named Colin Crowell. Uh, Colin was the head of GR, government relations at Twitter, uh, put that department together. He's now in charge of government relations for us. And so he's got a team and he's talking to folks in D.C. all the time. So we're spending, you know, we're spending a lot of money trying to educate people, uh, not just here, but around the world. I think what happened in the EU with this micro, mica, mica bill, whatever, they, yeah. whatever it is, uh, was amazing. You saw Bitcoin uh, users globally groundswell, provide lots of information, get involved, and, and they denied this bill. And so I, I, I don't think, I think for the first time ever, we have this global and united community that's going to lobby everywhere in the world. And, and I'm very bullish on Bitcoin users becoming one of the largest lobbying organizations globally. I think that you have a very active group of people that really care about how the world turns out and, and they're coming together nicely. Fantastic. Well, I think that's an excellent spot to finish up there, Darren. Uh, really enjoyed chatting with you. If you had any closing thoughts out there for listeners or things that they should be thinking about or doing uh, if they're out there looking for ways to educate, maybe if you could leave them with maybe if there are any good points or arguments that you found in your discussions that have really resonated with people. So on the on the so you have the you have the energy use. I think a lot of the material, if you have energy detractors, there's a lot of material. It's on hope.com. It's Michael Saylor's website. We present, we have a nine page presentation last quarter that I talked about the efficiency joule per terahash. Uh, all of those metrics are there. We talked about how much energy is used globally and how much the global Bitcoin network use. Uh, that's there. We talk about how much energy is generated in America versus wasted energy. The argument that's kind of hit the top level of FUD in our industry is the energy use. Uh, I would 
the Bitcoin Mining Council information is very dispositive that this is a positive industry for the world and that as the innovation continues and the users continue, it will bring greater freedom to everyone, 8 billion people. That's the hope. Uh, Darren, where can people find you and uh, Core Scientific online? I'm on Twitter, Darren Feinstein. I, uh, I had a lot of fake people asking for like your information. That wasn't me. So I, I find they've, but now, but I, they, they tick mark me. So that's happened a lot less. And then Core Scientific is also on Twitter as well. Uh, that's probably the best way to see updates on both. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining me, Darren. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's good to finally talk to you. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 356. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.